Promo Kitchen is a nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. This edition of the PK Podcast was supported by Gemline. Gemline keeps you on trend, on time, and on budget with four product launches a year and inspiring seasonal trends. They offer a broad selection of products to fit any budget. Their brand partnerships with Isaac Mizrahi, Bobble, Brookstone, Igloo, Moleskin, Lamy, and Zebra provide more exciting branding solutions than ever before. Please be sure to visit their website at gemline.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. If you are a new listener, the PK Podcast is a community-inspired conversation featuring guest suppliers, distributors, and service providers discussing insights into the $20 billion promotional products business. My name is Mark Graham, CEO of Common Skew and Right Sleeve, and I'm joined by my good friend and co-host, Danny Rosen, president of BrandFuel. Today, it's my distinct pleasure to welcome Tom Gose, president of ImageSource, to the podcast. Tom got his start in the promotional products industry shortly after graduating from the University of Washington when he started with AIA in 1997. Two years into his industry experience, he joined forces with Brian Hayner to launch ImageSource. Since opening its doors in 1999, ImageSource has become one of the most respected players in the industry, having grown from startup to a $13 million powerhouse with three offices across the United States. Tom's day-to-day responsibilities include setting the strategic direction for the company, overseeing daily operations, as well as managing major client relations and supplier partnerships. Tom is also an active contributor to our industry. Tom currently sits on the board of directors of PPAI and is vice chair of financial services. Tom was recently elected as chair-elect of the board and will be chairman of the board in 2016. Tom is also a former two-term president of the Northwest Promotional Marketing Association. Outside of work, Tom is a passionate endurance athlete who competes in triathlons, duathlons, as well as cycling and running events. His top accomplishment to date is competing for Team USA in the duathlon world championships in Gijon, Spain. Businessman, family man, sportsman, and chairman, Tom, we welcome you to the podcast. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Danny. I appreciate it. You guys are doing a great thing with Promo Kitchen. We really, uh, really a, a cool way to to add mentorship and education. So, thanks for having me. Well, we're really honored to have you on the on the podcast, and thanks for taking a little bit of time out of your day. I'm going to start off with a question for you, Tom. I'm always curious to ask this question of people who start in the industry as relatively young people, and I'm curious as to what attracted you to this industry as a young college graduate. Yeah, well, it's funny because I think like many and people we come across to now, I wasn't sure what the industry was. I had seen logoed shirts and pens, but I never put it all together that this was an industry, much less, you know, now a $20 billion industry. And I actually met my business partner, Brian Hayner, and he told me what he did for a living, which I equated to selling pens. Yeah. At least that's, you know, at, out of the conversation, that's what I gathered. And I asked him, you know, how much he sold. And at the time, this was probably in 95 or so, he sold a million dollars. He was a million dollar producer. I'm a numbers guy, and I asked him what his commission rate was and what margins were. And I quickly computed what type of income this could possibly bring. I, you know, was in school and planning on graduating with a marketing and management degree. And this seemed like a lot of fun. It seemed like it was 
an industry where it could be lucrative and you could have fun selling. And so that's what initially drew me in. And when I started, I was one of the youngest people on the floor. I remember going to Dallas and showing up on the floor going, wow, do I belong here? I'm probably the youngest one here. And it's funny because I still feel like young, but then now I'm on the show floor and I'm not not the youngest anymore, but mm. but uh, young at heart. How about that? Yeah, uh, absolutely young at heart. And so another thing that I was curious about is, so you joined with Brian and you joined as partners at the very beginning. Is that correct? Yeah. A little bit of my story is I was with Adventures in Advertising. They were just a distributorship in the Seattle area. They weren't franchising, or they just started to franchise, but it was just a, a distributorship. They ended up completely franchising everything and closing the office, and Brian and I both were at the office there. We went to Idea Man and Bob Waldorf, which was a great experience for me, a lot of learning. What a great man. And that time, you know, not long into that, Brian stepped out and started Image Source out of his house. I stayed on, Halo acquired us, and ran the region for Halo, hmm. which was also a really good learning experience for me. Brian and I said, Let, you know, when the timing is right, let's let's join forces. And then in 99, we, we joined forces and opened an office, essentially hired, you know, our first employee, which is still with us, Nancy Waters, She's basically my, my right hand, right, and lucky enough to still have her and just sort of grew it from that time in 1999. And how have you made that partnership work? I know this is something that a lot of people in the industry face and some certainly struggle with is this idea of either family businesses that have partnerships or just classic partnerships like the one you see with Danny and Robert at Brand Fuel. I'm always intrigued to understand what goes into a successful partnership, particularly for a distributorship at your size and experience and, and offices across the country. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think what people don't always realize, and I coach and mentor this now, is it's, it's really a marriage, right? And you have to look at it that way. I think people jump into partnerships, maybe often like marriages, too early, right? And you really need to make sure that this person is someone you can live with forever or for as long as you, know, you want the business or career. And maybe you should have to look into each other's eyes and have some type of vows, mm -hmm. but you know, I've seen many partnerships fall apart. I think for us, obviously, communication's key. We're very different people, and I think for the company, that's really good. We look at things differently, and our skill sets are different, and, mm. and they complement each other. And so as we grew, initially, when we were a, a small distributorship, just us, right, we did everything. And back then, it was, you know, you're FedExing camera-ready art and cutting out things and doing your own follow-up, and, and it's the whole deal. I know many of the listeners can relate. Then we hired Nancy, and we had support. And so Nancy was sales support and office manager, and, and we had some accounting help. And, and then as we grew and grew and grew, we found ourselves duplicating each other's efforts. We hmm. were both doing finance. We were both doing ops. We were both doing business development. We were both selling. And eventually, when we grew to a point where we said, you know, it really makes sense for us to define our roles and responsibilities and each take an element of the business that complements our style a little bit better. And so you have to give up control in that other area, and you have to trust the other person. And that's not always easy because you've been going down this road doing the same work, you know, with each other. And at some point you just have to say, you know, in my case, Brian, you've got this. I trust you and him to me. And that takes some time. You have to have a similar vision. 
and you have to talk about it and lay it out. You know, we do a strategic plan. You know, we do a one-year and a three-year. We've done 10-year BHAGs, if you know what a BHAG is, a big, hairy, audacious goal. And so, you know, you define those so that you at least know you're in and you know that you're going in the same direction because if not, then you have conflict. And and like any marriage, we we have conflict. And and the key is resolution. We work it out. We talk it through. And ultimately, we're stronger. So it's, it's tough navigating a business partnership, but I think it's beneficial when you can truly put a good one together. Let me um, let me ask you another question, Tom, that dives in a little deeper into your personal psyche a bit. Talk to us about maybe some of the principles that you personally live by. We know you're a fierce competitor. Hopefully we'll talk a little bit about that today. If you have a personal code of ethics and how might that code permeate into your business and, and your partnership with Brian? Uh, well, great question. I mean, I think we've always said we're built on a foundation of ethics, and I think you have to be. You know, you have to have core values. Uh, a few years back, it's probably been six or seven, we, you know, we developed a, a core values, you know, around solutions, integrity, passion, and partnership. And, and I think it's important that everyone, and not just the principles, that it's part of the culture within the organization. I mean, at times I have people come in and say, hey, going through this dilemma, what do you think we should do? And it's pretty simple. You tell the truth, right? And be vulnerable to the client and explain it and walk it through. And I think eventually it just sticks, right? The culture flushes out and people realize what you're going to say. If they come to Brian or I and they have a problem, problem resolution, we have to figure it out. But ultimately, the foundation of integrity and ethics comes out of that. We, we never try to deceive or... or cover up things. It's all about being vulnerable to the client and just being honest, and they'll ultimately appreciate that. So, you know, for us, that's the foundation of the company, and we're both on the same page there, so that's never really been a challenge. Tom, I know that the words uh, competitive, tenacious are words that have come out in, in certainly some of the conversations that we've had about yourself and about your approach to business, and, and, and certainly they've all come out of your mouth in a positive way. Yeah. I'm always really interested in how competitiveness and tenacity, what role they play in business today when we spend a lot of time, I think, in business today being nice and and having integrity and all those things and, and being conscientious. And these things are extremely important, but I think sometimes they seem to, at least in today's age of business, it feels like they overshadow some of those core kind of more baser instincts in business. And, and I'm wondering how it is that you marry those two, because clearly you're someone who has got a strong code of ethics, but at the same time, you're someone who passionately wants to win and you want to, <laughs> you want that order over the next guy. How do you marry those two in a way where you come out on top, not only from a business perspective, but you also come out on top as someone who did it the right way? Yeah, and I don't think those things have to be mutually exclusive, and I know some people do. You know, I was sitting with Marty Lott, and one of the foundations that he has for his business is be nice and do the right thing. And I was just like, wow, like, you know, such simple words, but I was like overtaken. I was like, that makes so much sense to me. Yeah, It, it doesn't mean if you're tenacious and you want to win and you're willing to put in the discipline and the time and the commitment to win, that you can't be nice and you can't do the right thing. It's like you, you can do all that together. And I, yeah. and I think that's what I try to do. At least that's what I strive for. I, I'm a very competitive person and not verbally. I like to let my actions show. Discipline's a big key for me. 
I'm a creature of habit, mm. so I do a lot of the same things, and I think sometimes that's good and sometimes it's bad. You know, I eat the same foods in the morning. I train every morning. I have a six-year-old son and a wife, and so I want to be home after work and present, and so um, I get up early, do my workouts, mostly swim, biking, and running based on my triathlon schedule, and then I'm off to work, and I like to really get in as early as possible and, and get work done, so I like that discipline, you know, focusing on first things first and tier one opportunities, but I also like to live by goals. I'm a numbers guy. I said that early. Everyone on my team here knows that, so I live by I live by goals. I set activity goals and sales goals and workout goals. I've been tracking my workouts since 2000. And, and all it does for me is it helps me stay on track and focus. Let's say in a workout, it feels like you had a good month. What does that mean? You know, how many workouts did I do? Was it quantifiable? And so I use data to measure that success. And so I can look back at my workouts and say, okay, well, I did this many workouts in March of 2000. I know all those numbers. And so I, I know if I'm on track or not. Some of it's by gut, but a lot of it's by data. And so that's sort of how I've stayed on track and used that. I, you know, I think you can be tenacious and you can have the will to fight. I've always had that perseverance in me. Mm. And I've never been the smartest, right? So I just have to work hard. I try to work hard and smart, but when we're involved in an RFP or, you know, if I'm competing for a race, it, it, I have a strong mental mind. I can, I, I can put myself through pain. Yeah. I can also put myself through long work hours prior to my son being bored. My wife and I would both work 12-hour days. It's just what we did mm. day in and day out. It was just the norm. And now things have changed. Obviously, priorities have shifted, but I, you know, I still have a business to run, and I still have a life. And so I, I really believe in a, in a balanced life, but that tenacity is sort of built into my, my DNA. Do you know the name Jonathan Parham? Parham? You recognize that, Tom? I don't. Windswept Marketing? How about that? Yep. Okay. Brian. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah. So I guess Brian had, I, I think this is a good segue because you're talking about competitiveness and, and yet the balance, integrity, and the things that Mark brought up. A guy just left our office from Windswept Marketing showing us some new decoration techniques, very impressive stuff. And he was here today giving us this tour at Brand Fuel because you all, a distributor, in all sense of the word, a lot of people would say, well, you're a competitor even though we're East Coast, West Coast, and you've got you know multiple offices and hopefully get a chance to talk about expansion, but he is here because you all referred him to us because you thought our business could succeed with the relationship with, with these guys that have a pretty cool decoration technique. So first I want to say thank you. You know, after you and I met at the LDW, it was very apparent to me that collaboration is how you approach business and life. And I want you to talk a little bit about why that's so important to you, how that's helped your organization, maybe inspire some others and and I think that story of windswept coming in here, we would probably not have taken that call if you guys not made that recommendation. And it was all based on the premise of collaboration. Yeah, you know, I think for me, one of the greatest things about this industry, and I think for me, one of the greatest things about my volunteerism, and that's both at a regional level and a national level, is meeting great people. I think that's the biggest lift I get. And a lot of that is, you know, learning best practices and shared learning. And so for me, it's all about sharing. You know, I think a lot of times this industry gets caught up in 
hiding that. You know, they don't want their competitor to have that supplier or know that information. And I think it's really beneficial to share and learn. And, you know, even locally, I talk to a lot of the top principals of with my key competitors, and, and I guess we have trade secrets, if you'd call it that, but I wouldn't really go so far. I mean, we all know what we do, and, and we sell similar products. We go to market differently. We have different cultures. We have different service levels. Our core competencies might be a little bit different, but most of us go to market very similarly. And so I think sharing and giving is a great way to learn. So when we met at LDW, I, I just love to listen and soak in information. And same with Mark. I met Mark at an NWPMA event, and I, I reached out to Mark because he's an interesting guy, I, and both of you. And so I just wanted to learn and soak in a little bit and share if asked, but I, I love just listening. And for me, the people that I've met along the industry volunteer journey have helped me advance my career. Um, mm. And I don't think I would be where I'm at without that. You take elements of each individual and you kind of put it on your shoulder and, and it helps you grow. And I know you guys are doing it. Obviously, there's a mentorship program with Promo Kitchen. I've mentored my team here. I've mentored outside of my team at a regional level. And I think it's like giving, right? You always get more than you give. And I think that element of learning best practices and shared learning for me, it's been a very positive part of my industry journey. It's interesting to hear that you say that. And I reflect on the news from a couple of days ago when Elon Musk, the founder of the co-founder of Tesla, publicly released all of his patents for all their innovations. And, you know, the this might be a loose comparison, but it's one that I'm going to run with anyhow. Part of his logic was this is a fledgling but fast-growing industry. And even though Tesla is competing with the likes of GM and, and Ford and people that are much larger and have deeper pockets than he does, that the prevailing view at Tesla was that the industry would be better if competitors were sharing some best practices and collaborating more around the future of electric cars. And I thought that that was really interesting because here you take a company that you could argue has some pretty serious investments and some trade secrets, but they're now prepared to go and and open the kimono, so to speak, so that everyone can be better. And then sure, there's got to be a profit motive. I mean, Tesla has got investors and clearly they they made this decision knowing that there would be economic fortunes in in the future. So I I just, I thought that was interesting. And I I really do see a parallel between that and what you just said, Tom. And the other thing that I thought of was that, um, and I can certainly speak for myself, but I'm interested to get your opinion too, guys, that when I first started in this industry, I kept to myself. I didn't know others in the industry. And if I did come across them, I thought, oh gosh, I don't have anything in common with them or why would I be friends with them? They're my competitors and so on and so forth. And now that I reflect back on that, given that I've become a lot more open in terms of meeting people, I really ascribe it to immaturity. (laughs) When you first start out, you're not particularly mature in business. And I think it, it comes at special time several years into your career where you realize that a guy like Danny Rosen doesn't represent a threat as much as his friendship represents an opportunity for me to grow. And, and the same, I would say, of you, Tom, and all the other people that are part of Promo Kitchen. So I think that that's a, an interesting part of your career. And, and my, I suppose my question to you is, when you first started in 1999, this idea of collaborating with competitors, was, was that foreign to you? And if so, when did your attitude change? Well, I think I always had an open mind to it. When I was with, you know, I started out with adventures in advertising, and, and 
most of the account executives within that organization were friends but didn't really share. It wasn't a collaborative work environment like I think we have here at ImageSource. We're a true team. You know, we do brainstorming together. We share. We learn. And, and I think that's something that was more comfortable to me than the environment that I was in. And so I think you have to create that culture in that environment. It doesn't always come naturally. But you also have to hire the right people who want that same type of open relationship. And I, I have plenty of people from were with former companies that weren't like that, and so our culture was different. So for me, I think that's an important part of, of who we are. And when I first started, I didn't really get involved either, Mark. I was just sort of trying to understand what an A was and <laughs> how, to, how to sell products and services and be different and differentiate and learn this vast industry. It's not as easy as it seemed walking in the door. And so, but I think competence breeds confidence, and confidence breeds competence, right? Mm -hmm. And so after a while, you start feeling, and, and I call it like a two-year learning curve. And I don't care who we bring in and how sharp they are. It's a couple years till they really get their groove. And that's true in any role that we hire here at ImageSource. And so after that time, and I think that was for me too, my sales were pretty flat. And then I, I started to really jump up. My first two years, I sold a quarter million dollars year one and year two. And then in year three, I think my number was 588,000. There's me, my numbers guy. And then I really started jumping up. Year four, I was in the 800. Then I became a million dollar producer and became a multi-million dollar producer. So I think for me, it sort of took time to get that competence and confidence. And, and then when I found out about industry involvement, a decorator reached out to me and said, I think you'd be really good on the, the board of NWPMA. It was called PPAOW at the time, but it was our regional association. And, and I, I was attracted to that. I had volunteered for United Way. I've been on the board of United Way before and involved in their marketing committee and some other things. And so that volunteerism was attractive to me, but I knew I had work to do. And so it was a balancing act. But then I started learning quite a bit from other people and saw it sort of help develop me as a sales professional, as an industry professional, and as a person. And so eventually it just caught on to, you know, part of who I am. That's interesting. So the pathway that Tom goes has, has sort of gone in terms of going from, you know, selling what's a, a, a decent chunk of, of product back in the day, AIA, and then having the entrepreneurial seizure and, and with Brian and starting your business and growing and developing that in the way that you wanted to develop it and growing your sales and now taking on these volunteer roles that have allowed you to become effectively, I think, coming into 2015, the senior most position within the industry as far as PPAI goes as the chairman of the Promotional Products Association. And that's impressive. You've got to look at yourself in the mirror and Congratulate yourself, but um, it's so impressive to hear the story that grabbing the bull by the horn, so to speak, or talking to the right people, working hard, you know, anybody can get there. Not anybody, but most people have an opportunity to get there. And so looking at where you are today, the vantage from the boardroom, and I know you can't share everything with us, but what are the things that you're dealing with as far as the industry goes at a high level, some of the challenges that you're grappling with in the, in the boardroom? Yeah, it was interesting. Before I joined the board, I, I would see a lot of this stuff come across from PPAI, and I was just hoping someone was handling it, right? I mean, it's right. sort of that, that hope and prayer, and, and 
you know, a lot of it's around, you know, product safety and, and lobbying and government affairs and industry advocacy. And I would always say, wow, I hope someone's doing this on my behalf, right? Because I really wasn't doing a lot of that. Even at the regional level, it's very different, right? It's a very tactical approach. We're putting on shows and education and there's some advocacy, but not a lot. You know, I was part of the early advocacy program, and I spoke at a, a few of the college classes just around the industry and what we do. And but the rest of it, I was I was just really hoping someone was handling it. And and when I was approached to run for the board, it was several years ago. I wasn't I wasn't ready. I was just I was interested, but I didn't want to throw my hat in the ring quite yet. And I was approached for a few years, and I and I finally did throw my my hat in the ring. And and obviously, I've got got elected to the board of directors. And when I'm in, I'm in, and that's just the kind of person I am. And so I tend to try to take on what I can and and make a difference. I think if if I'm going to do something, I better be all in or don't do it. And so you know, on a PPAI level, one we have great leaders. Paul Bellantone and Bob McLean are, are amazing. And, and I didn't really know that until I went in for board training. They are very well run. There's a staff of about 80, and, and they do great work. And I expected to see an organization ran like a nonprofit, and I was really pleased to see it run like a business. Mm -hmm. um, they really look at P&Ls and making a difference and impact areas. And, and so I was, I was kind of used to the United Way and, and how they go to market and how they run an operation. So kudos to Paul and Bob, the directors and the staff there. And I'm not kidding. It's, it's very well run. And so one, I realized, wow, this is, this is a little bit different of a volunteer board. They have a staff. They do all the execution. You know, it's interesting. At a regional level, you do a lot of the activities. You know, you're putting on the show. There's an executive director, but a lot of the activities is, is you. And, and on the PPI board, a typical meeting where we're having a board meeting in person, we have to read about 150 to 200 pages of information, and you have to make decisions on that. And so it's very different. It's, it's not like a lot of tactical activities. It's more about making big, sweeping industry decisions. And so that's exciting to me, but it's a big responsibility, and I don't, I don't take it lightly. And so I read all the content, and I, I think about it, and, and I might think a little bit differently. You know, I, I don't like to raise my voice unless I really have something to say. And so, but I, you know, I speak my mind. And so I, I, I like to advocate for the industry based on how I view it. So I, to get back to your point on, the, on what's going on in the boardroom, you know, I, I think some of the, the key things that are happening is obviously product safety. It's something that I've been aware of, but the more I get involved, the more I realize it's, it has to be a sweeping change. You know, if, God forbid, something happens terrible with a promotional product, it, it could mean billions of lost revenue from, from everyone, you know, everyone within the industry. And so that's something we really all have to get involved in. Government affairs, this whole waste and abuse that sometimes have been coined at the federal level, an example of that was you know, Obama had an executive order that said, you know, no more promotional products buying. Well, PPI had, through their LEAD program, which is their Legislative Education and Action Day, but just their overall public affairs and lobbying, they were able to get ahead of that message and actually counter that and get that lifted. And so that could have meant, could be, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars in sales that were put back on the table. And mm -hmm. so, and, and you can say that's all because of PPI's um, government affairs and lobbying effort. 
Some of the big things going on is just the industry advocacy, right? We're, we're PPI is trying to help promote the overall industry, and that kind of goes back to Elon Musk and what he's doing. He's trying to grow the industry overall so that Tesla is more successful. But the only way Tesla can be more successful is if the industry is more successful, and I think that's what PPI is looking at it too, and that's how I look at it. Instead of taking revenue from each other and exchanging it, why not take it from other mediums, right? There's a lot out there in television, direct mail, point of purchase, you know, cable TV, magazines, newspaper, radio. You could go on billboard. You know, we're one of the only industries that are really growing in the marketing mix. And so why not get out there and create visibility to end buyers? And, and PPI has an advocacy program that they relaunched. Obviously, they're doing promotional products work week, which has been a great success. And Larry Cohen, who is a chef at Promo Kitchen, and Paul were just, just at Ad Week really trying to create credibility within the marketplace. We want, as an industry and PPI, really want other marketing mediums to legitimize our business, right? We're $20 billion. We want it really to understand that we're an effective marketing medium. And so those are all really important things I think that PPI is doing and making a really huge difference. In, and, and I don't think I realized it until I got involved and, as I say, looked under the hood. And so I'm, I feel pretty lucky to be on the board at this time because I think they're doing so many great things, putting on great shows, obviously Expo, largest show in the industry, and, and Expo East, and the partner with Sage and the Power of Two. Those are just great things that, you know, I'm just a distributor out of Seattle. I, I want to see all those things help me go to market, and, and I think they do. I use Sage, and, and it's a great product, and all the things that we're doing are just helping us as suppliers and distributors do a better job and, and hopefully survive and sell more. Further to that point, I'm so interested in what you were talking about with regard to promotional products and our relationship with other ad media and, and marketing media, and one of the things that I think about is where is the next growth lift for our industry? So as, as you say, we're sitting at $19, $20 billion. It's a pretty impressive number for the industry. But despite those numbers, we're growing at fairly conservative growth rates, 3 4 5%. Nothing that's particularly exciting. Now, fortunately, we're moving in, in the right direction, but it's not like we're a double-digit growth story for the industry. And one of the things that I wonder is, and, and I want your perspective as someone who's on the inside and, and from the board, you obviously have a very unique perspective. Do you see a double-digit growth opportunity for this industry in the next five or ten years? And if so, do you think that it's going to come at the expense of television or outdoor or print? And, and what does that look like? And where do those opportunities exist for suppliers and distributors that are looking to dramatically increase their business without stealing it from another distributor? Yeah. Well, I wish I had the crystal ball. <laughs> there you go. That was a tough question. But I but... know, but I'll share, I'll share my, my thought on that. I think the number last year was a growth of 4.4%. I think there was only three you know, advertising mediums that grew out of like 19. Mm, yeah. Um, I never let facts get in the way of a good story, but that, those are the numbers as I remember it. So I think that's a really positive sign for the industry is there's so many mediums that are shrinking, yet we're gaining. Do I think that we'll enjoy double-digit growth? I'm not sure we will, but I'm not sure we really need to. I mean, we're a big industry, and as an industry grows 
you know, to, it gets to the level where we're at, $20 billion, it's, hard, it's hard to have double-digit growth. We're not the mobile phone market yep. where they're going to, you know, they're going to grow at, at, you know, clips that, that are huge. They're a very small percentage, and, and so growth is easy. And so I'd like to think that, that we're taking chunks out of those other marketing mediums. And that's not easy to do. We have to show value. And I think that's one thing we really try at ImageSource is, is to differentiate. You know, we, we look at ourselves as more of that ad agency approach. You know, we ask great questions. We try to immerse ourselves in the client's culture and, and understand who their client is and, and understand their employee and, and how they go to market and what events they have going on and how they're going to measure the success of the campaign if you can really add value, I think as a company out there, maybe not as an industry, you could have double-digit growth. I think that's all about differentiation. And I think we really need to do that as an industry overall, as competition like Alibaba and other online companies come into the market. We really have to show to our clients how we're different and how we differentiate and how we add value. And for us, I think there's a few different things that we do that do that. One, I think, is really that type of approach of that ad agency, great questions, understanding, you know, the culture and the clients and the, and the community that, that they're all in. So I think as an industry, I see us continuing to grow. But as an individual company, I think you can get those double-digit growth we have by differentiating yourself. And everyone has their own you know, go-to-market strategies and how they differentiate. And I think for us, it's, it's that ad agency approach. Does that answer your question? It, it certainly does. I think that something we've certainly discussed on this podcast or has been a prevailing theme is this idea of, as an industry, if all of us that were in it from a supplier and distributor perspective started asking more questions and took a more consultative and less transactional approach, then I think that's, that's probably one of your quickest wins right there. Because as you say, Tom, your distributorship has grown considerably because of that agency, consultative, question-asking, creative type approach. And I think that if we reflect back on a lot of the people that we've interviewed on this podcast, a lot of them fall into that same category, whereas it feels like the people that are kind of flatlining or growing very modestly are the ones that are trying to compete just on the transaction and the product. There's a, a hefty percentage of people that just do transactions in this industry. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that per se, but if that segment was able to take a page from the image sources of the world, then I could see tremendous growth in this industry. I think that it would correct a lot of the perception problems that we have amongst end users, particularly with the governments. And I suppose I thank you for your leadership <laughs> setting an example for others. Yeah, you know, I think it's important that, you know, that even the term swag, right, stuff we all get, it's, it's, it has a negative connotation when you say it that way. And so, you know, <laughs> I've heard Paul Bellantone say, well, you know, when he's in front of a, a lead with a senator or a congressperson and, and trying to justify our industry when it's terms like swag come out, you know, my clients use swag and talk about a Toomey product. So it's, not, you know, it's not always a negative connotation, but that can be pinned on us. And so if we go at it with that consultative selling approach and ask great questions, and I, and I think that's the key is my team knows not to come approach me with ideas until they've asked the questions because I'm going to ask them 
if they know who the audience was and what they did last year, was it successful? And of course we need to know the budget and the quantity, but if that's the only thing you know, we're in trouble, right? Mm -hmm. There's so many products. We need to really deliver on target with creative ideas. And to do that, we need to know the target audience and the demographic and the community it's in and how it's going to be distributed and, and what they're trying to accomplish with the campaign and, and how will they measure the success. And without that, we're just throwing ideas on the wall and, and hoping it sticks. And so there's so many products. You, you're also just wasting a ton of time, right? You, you really want to just hone in on some creative product ideas. So, And I think for us, we've done a great job of hiring great people, right? And I, I would give that to our success. We have a VP of marketing, Jeff Holt, and, and you know he's a creative genius, right? He re really helps us with our not only our marketing to our customers, but also how our approach, our creative approach. He's got an agency background, and so that's been really important to 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 who we are. Um, and and true, just in normal structure, you know, to to grow and and be a better organization, you have to have a, a really strong operational infrastructure. And we hired a VP of finance and operation. Cheryl Williams about five or six years ago, and she's just made a huge difference with us being operationally efficient. And, and that efficiency gets pushed on to our clients. So not only do we take that consultative selling approach, but we have you know a really strong ERP and 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 really a customer centric focused company from accounting to marketing to sales to everyone in the organization. So as a company, I think you have to be all pointed in that direction. And putting that consultative selling approach on the front of that, but I think it's it's everything, right? This is a sort of a, a glass ceiling question for you then to think about. I think most businesses at some point in time in their evolution they they start to hit the glass ceiling because they're maybe gaining an account, lose a big account, gain a big account, lose a big account, turnover with salespeople. You know, you get to that sort of sweet spot where you're growing, 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 and then all of a sudden you just can't break through for all these reasons. You're not getting on top of it with your technology, et cetera, et cetera. Looking back at the evolution of image source and the decisions that you all have made along the way, was there something that allowed you to sort of break through that glass ceiling, you know, whether it was personnel or technology or, or an approach to business, landing a large account, how did you do that? Is it a culmination of the, any of those things that, that contributed to what I think is a pretty large leap into, you know, 13 plus million dollars in sales? Yeah, that's a great question, Danny. I, I do think there's a, a couple key pieces there. One, I think we had a key account, um, Microsoft actually, that, that helped push us you know, the, the client was actually pushing us to innovate, and I think sometimes that happens. Is, is you <laughs> you ride the wave, and and you, you have to improve and create better processes and, and do a better job because a client is is pushing you along. But I think one of the key pieces for us was growing in headcount. I think sales is one thing, but headcount is is really what changes your operational structure. And I think one of the things that that I learned and I'll credit Brian, my business partner on this, pushing us to hire great people to do things that we're not as good at. And I think as an entrepreneur, you sort of think you can do everything. You know, you're going to do marketing and oversee accounting and sales and business development and every element. And I think eventually you grow and you have to realize you're not the best at everything. What are you good at? And hire great people 
to fill those gaps. And, and I talked a little bit about Jeff Holt, you know, doing our marketing. And he joined us, I think, in 2002 and really elevated our game there, something that Brian and I probably would have stumbled through but just couldn't take us to that next level. And then when we, years later, around 2008, when we were really struggling with growth, and again, headcount more than sales, although they should obviously coincide, adding Cheryl William as our Vice President of Finance Operations, she, she really built, helped us build our infrastructure to handle the growth. And, and that includes all types of things, right? It's your, it's your software, it's your systems, it's your procedures, and a lot of it is, is your culture and how it's kind of built into your DNA. And so I think for me, hiring key people to do jobs that you're not the best at and you realize that, it's sort of a, sort of a self-actualization thing, right? You have to some, at some point realize there's someone who can do this better than me and, and you're, you're not scared to hire that for fear that they might do a better job than you, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think as entrepreneurs, we sort of fear like, you know, am I a failure if I can't do everything? You know, um, you have to realize, you know, you're, you're good at, maybe good at certain things, but you're not good at everything and, and grasp and hold on to the things you're good at and delegate and empower people to do those other things. So I think that's been what's helped us grow over the years and get us past those glass ceilings. And I think we've got some ceilings to go, right? We're in that mid-market. We're in the top 1% nationally based on sales volume. But to get into that next, you know, $20 million markets, it's, again, some big leaps. And, and you, you have to overcome infrastructure changes and, and, and regional growth. Tom, I just in taking a look at the time here, wanted to maybe ask one last question for you. And it's actually a great uh, your, what you just said was actually something that I had planned to ask you. So you teed it up perfectly, but thought we could try to unpack this and then, and then we could look at a, another uh, instance or installation of this podcast because I think we're just getting started with you. It's interesting if you think about the makeup of this industry that you've got a lot of small players. As you mentioned, well over 90% of the industry is made up of distributors that are selling less than a million dollars. And at the very high end of the industry, you've got uh, distributors that are 70, 80, 100 million plus. What's the future of what I would define as being that large but sort of mid-market distributor, distributor that's doing anywhere between 10 and let's say $30 million in sales. So they're clearly a big player. They may have a few offices, someone that's going to fit the profile of an image source. What's the future for that segment? Are they going to trend upwards? Are they going to trend down? Or are they going to be is the future of this industry really going to be in that segment as more people at the bottom end start to graduate and move up the, the food chain? I'd like to think there's a, a market for our size. And I think at a certain level, you really create some operational efficiencies, right? I mean, I really think we have a, a software, an ERP, that can handle, you know, two, three, four times our sale, sales. Mm. We, and we've invested in that. And so I think... Once you create an infrastructure that can handle it, there's certain costs that are fixed, and, and you can enjoy some some growth without pain. Uh, you always get a little bit of pain, but you can grow with the infrastructure you're, you currently have. So I, I'd like to think that call it the uh, mid market. You know, we're not the biggest, but we're not the smallest. I, you know, I, and there's not a lot of companies this size. Maybe there's you know 50 to 100 that are somewhere in that. Five to, to twenty million dollar range. I like to think there's a, a 
a sweet spot for us within within the market. You know, you see a lot of the big companies are still made up of a lot of really small individuals, mm. right? Yep. Um, a lot of the franchises and independent contractor models, it's, it's very similar. So we are a very decentralized industry, and I think there's advantages and disadvantages to that. But a, a lot of people gravitate towards the franchise if they don't want to manage the back end or don't have the capital to invest into their growth. And so, you know, I definitely see continued consolidation within both the supplier and the distributor model. I mean, it's it costs more to do business. I mean, the, the expense side of our business continues to grow, whether it's, you know, healthcare and, and you know, just d- different expenses that grow year over year. I don't have any expenses that really are going down. You know, it just doesn't exist. And so um, at some level, you need to be a certain size to survive, right, and, and make those costs efficient. And yeah. so... And I think for us, there's there's some growth to help with that. And I think one is, you know, we invested in some of that infrastructure. So it allows us to grow without buying a, a completely new software or um, buying another building or anything. And so, you know, we have some growth to be had. And I think others do as well. I really think there's a sweet spot for for someone who wants to have some differentiation, be a little different, go to market a little bit different than everyone else. But not be the biggest. I don't see Image Source, you know, being a five hundred million dollar company. It's it's probably not where we want to go. But you know, we do want to have some growth and 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 develop our teams and be progressive and different. And and that's not always sales volume. Danny, any last comments from you, my friend? I don't have any last comments other than um, very impressed with what you have done with your business and also very appreciative of your investment back into the industry, Tom. It, it takes a really impressive person to, to put so much in in the volunteer leadership role, and, and I know everybody appreciates that. But maybe you have a comment, any last comments to share with us before we close this one out? Well, for me, I, I, touche. I mean, Danny and Mark, what you guys have done, you know, I know Danny's done a lot on the leadership advisory committee with PPAI and, and with Promo Kitchen and, and Mark, you as well. With you've done with Common Skew and, and Promo Kitchen. So kudos to you guys. I see you guys as leaders, and and you know, lucky for me, this is kind of the the collisions. If you, if you remember uh, Tony Shea's keynote at PPAI, he talked about mm-hmm. collisions, and and this is kind of how I describe things is you know, meeting Mark and meeting Danny and in other areas and colliding. And that's the, those are the things that I look forward to is colliding with, with really good people. And, and I think for me, I've been able to, you know, collide with such great people. And, and ultimately I've learned to be a better person and be a better industry professional because of it. So I encourage people to get involved and get out there and, and meet people, whether it's clients and industry professionals, and get involved with their regional association, get involved at a national level. It'll You'll reap the rewards with great collisions. Great collisions should be the, the, the hashtag for this, uh, for this <laughs> podcast. Well, thank you so much. This was so fun, and uh, do look out for uh, a sequel to, to come soon. <laughs> Thanks so much, Tom. This was fantastic. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Danny. Appreciate your time.